0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Curator with the best interviews and reports this year
1: here on Monaco 24. And on this week's show, we talk about 15 years of Monaco. Trust your instincts. And of course you can develop a bit and react to things. But I think we've just been very good at staying the course and sticking to our beliefs. And we've managed to do that for 15 years consistently. Plus, love letters to Ukrainian cities.
2: I just hope that our city and our country will stand, and this aggression, this war, will end as soon as possible, so people can stop dying and people can go back to their lives and to what we love doing in peaceful life.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And what a year it has been! We start this show with one of my favorite topics, Eurovision. I had the pleasure to be in Turin this year, covering once again Eurovision from Monaco. And I spoke to one of the hosts, actually, of Eurovision. He's big in Italy, Alessandro Catalan, a major figure. He was the host of X-Factor Italia. He currently has his own program on Netflix, talking to people like Italian director Paolo Sorrentino, and he's planning to do theater up next. But he told me more about How is it to host Eurovision? Alessandro Catalan, what a pleasure talking to you. And Alessandro, you are an icon for Italian TV. So tell us a bit more about this job of being a host at Eurovision... Is it something that comes quite naturally to you? Or are you kind of nervous for the big night?
3: I have to say both. Because it is something that comes naturally. Because uh, that kind of environment is where I grew up. Because I, I used to be host for MTV. Uh, so I'm, I'm used to musical festivals and contests and big stages. And then I, I've been hosting the X-Factor Italia for... Um, 10 years. So another song contest, but this is, of course, the biggest thing I've ever done in terms of viewers. And then I have I'm a need to host in English, which yes, I can speak, but speaking English in front of 2 million viewers, it's something that make like your legs shake 200
0: million viewers. You have good company with Laura Pausini and Mika as well. I think, have you met yeah. them already? Have you discussed how, how is it going to work?
3: Yeah, we are a good team. We are a good team. I think we are, we are balanced. Uh, each one of us has his own personality, but we share the same spirit, I have to say, because we are um, three people who, who really love enjoying the moment. And
0: that's what we are trying to do right now in Torino. And I was going to say, you have experiences of talking to the big stars. I was looking at a video of you with interviewing Beyoncé quite early in her career, and you were even... A gentleman with her as well, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, yeah, I can say I saved Beyoncé from her own airs <laughs> because she was having like hairs going on her mouth. And I just uh, said, sorry, can, can I take this out? And, and yeah, she said, you're a gentleman. And yes, I'm, I'm used to it because I, that's what I've always done. Hosting TRL for uh, for... Quite a long time got me used to to meet big stars and that has been like a, a wonderful period in my career because every week you used to be in company with Beyonce with Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, 50 cents, uh, the Oasis and yeah it, it was really fun.
0: Yeah I was talking you know we have a few Italians here in the office <coughs> and everybody was like they remember your time at TRL you had this a strong he's presence. Still
3: alive. Yes. He's still alive. He's still alive.
0: And he's going to host <laughs> to the, the biggest show ever. What's the relationship between Italy and, and Eurovision, Alessandro? Because I know Italy was out of Eurovision for a while, but now it's back in style, right?
3: Yeah, I don't know who we have to thank uh, for that, but also in Italy, Eurovision, it's huge again. After a period when I think they, they didn't even broadcast the show, but... Eurovision, I think, got back in in the last five, six, seven years. Maybe more, maybe more, actually. And now it's a big deal in Italy. I think from 2011, it's a really big thing. It's a huge thing once again in Italy.
0: Tell us a bit more, Alessandro, for our perhaps listeners that don't know so much about your career. what's, What's been kind of your most special job, would you say? Except Eurovision, you know, but would it be hosting X Factor, which was you know, one of the highest rated TV shows in Italy.
3: Yeah, I did a lot of that, which is similar to to my MTV period. I mean, when when I was like a musical event host. But in in the last years, I've been focusing myself more on uh, comedy, I have to say. I've got my own late night show for quite a long time. And I have now uh, a Netflix series uh, going on, which is called One Simple Question a series that, that I've written about pursuit of happiness. We call it like docu-series, which I don't think it exists as a, as a genre, but, but it's what it is. It's half a series, half a docu-show, and most of it, I think it's a comedy show. And it's going really well, and that's what I'm focusing on mostly in the last years. I mean, writing stuff and produce my own things.
0: And is it true in your show you had guests like Paolo Sorrentino as well, which I I love him as well.
3: Yeah, Paolo Sorrentino, uh, I had a a nice walk with him, uh, talking about religion, uh, because he's he's really a a clever guy. You can talk with Paolo about pretty much everything, and he has something clever to say about pretty much everything. So we we talk about religion. I, I went to Roberto Baggio's house, and I meditate with him and I talk about his retirement because he's, he, in, in a world like this one where everyone is on stage, he decided to, to disappear in a way. And I talk with Gianluca Vialli, former Chelsea player and manager, uh, which is struggling with, with a bad time right now. And we talked about happiness in pain, if you can find happiness in a period of pain. Well, as I was saying, I, I like exploring new, new paths.
0: That's beautiful. It's funny that you mentioned some football players there because you were part of a Champions League match as well, which is incredible.
3: <laughs> yeah, I had, I had one, one Champions League appearance. That's the thing I'm more proud of in my entire career. That two Champions League minutes, the last two minutes of a game that we already lost because we were two-nailed for the opposite team, but anyway, those two minutes are the things that I, that I am more proud
0: of. I mean, that's brilliant. That's you, You're <laughs> definitely a man of many talents as well. Not just kind of hosting Eurovision, which is a big deal, I have to say. And finally, Alessandro, I was just reading. Is it true that, you know, you, you're telling me that you have plans for theater as well? Is that true for later this uh, year?
3: Yeah, because I'm 40 now. And as I was saying, I've been doing... My TV career for 20 years now. And I decided now to try different things. I think that's the right time to, to try to put myself in danger in a way and try things that I've never done before. And so next, next autumn, I will try my first live show. It will be a comedy show. And it's pretty much my funeral. I'm writing it as, as my funeral. I mean i like to see who's going to come to my funeral. i like to see what will be the reaction to my, to my death. And that's the starting line to, to build up a, a comedy show.
0: Alessandro, I wish you all the luck for Saturday. I'm definitely going to be watching you. I'm sure you're going to do a great job. And, yeah, thank you very and,
3: much. I hope grazie,
0: so. Grazie. Grazie. Muito obrigado. Thanks for chatting. Muito Obrigado. and in a stellar lineup of a big interview series. Uh, we also spoke with Edward Anifel, editor-in-chief of British Vogue. He told us more about his wonderful memoir, A Visible Man.
4: I mean, there is something to be said for turning 50. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always sort of trying to look forward, always about forward motion. But in my 50th year, I mean, I got married we've been together for 20 years congratulations oh thank you <laughs> and I started looking back at my life and and then I also saw that a lot of young people sort of see the end result they see people like like me like you and they don't see the journey so I just felt that it was important to let them know that the journey was as much about my failures as well as my successes that you know you can always fall but pick yourself up so really it was for a new generation but also the fact that I was 50 and I was like owning my life so to say.
5: In the prologue you describe a moment you're walking your dog in the park with a friend yes. um, the pandemic has yes. hit us but also the horrific death of George Floyd yes. has started to become apparent and is you know just on everyone's um, social media and yes. around the world these two events almost collided. Yes. And in a way, that also prompted your oh my decision God, yes. to write this memoir. Yes.
4: I mean, I remember we'd been in lockdown for a while and George Floyd was murdered. And what really struck me was how all these young people from all across the globe sort of came out to Black protest.
6: Black lives matter! Black lives matter! The police in the UK have killed people and are held unaccountable for. Look at the t shirt
7: are the names of people they've killed. How dare the chief of police across the country issue a statement saying they're in
8: solidarity with George Floyd? They are disgraceful.
4: They have nothing. Never- and I just thought, my God, this is a generation—a really hopeful generation. And in that moment, I thought I could really tell a story, my story, just to see, to show people the power of possibility. So that was also another reason and timing.
5: And timing. <laughs> I want to go back to the very beginning of this beautiful memoir. You were born in Ghana, yes. in Takeredi, um, on the coast, and um, you, you, your father, Major Crosby Enifel, um, was um, you know, a military man who, who moved about quite a bit, but yes. the family was there living in a military enclosure. Tell me about that period, your childhood. Was this a happy time?
4: I mean, all I remember was sort of all these beautiful bungalows and just running from house to house in, in Takoradi, and being with my siblings. And, you know, when you live on a military race, it's very sort of very family oriented, so from house to house. Then we moved from Takoradi to Accra, which is the capital, to another military base called Burma Camp. And as I talk about in my book, um, Burma Camp was opposite the sea, and there was sort of a little hail with these sticks on. And, and we realized that, you know, that's where they sort of executed people. But when you're a child, you normalize everything. So you would be like on Sundays, we're like, oh, my God, it's firing squad day. But essentially, people would be dragged up and shot. It was a very surreal life growing up in Ghana, but on a military base. you know. And then eventually, we moved to the town of Temer, and things were a little more normal.
5: I mean it's so interesting the way you, you describe this kind of almost beautiful lawns, very sort of elegant, clipped, yes, yes, sort of almost yes. sterile place and then the contrast of this horrific yes. thing that you became habituated to yeah. yes, um, and very, very unusual for a child. Um, do you think that that haunts you at all today or did you is it just that oblique child memory that you just just have just hovering there?
4: I mean for me it's it's an oblique child memory but growing up I just realized my god how horrific it was I mean I remember I went back to Ghana before lockdown and I took a drive to see where we grew up and I looked across the hill where people were executed and it was a tiny little hill but when you're a, a child things are so magnified you know so it's an oblique memory yes in my childhood but it stayed with me it really
5: and the book is dedicated to grace
4: yes, mother, my mother
5: um, who was a very unusual military spouse in a way she <laughs> had a very successful um, yes. fashion business mm-hmm. 40 scenes such underneath her um, you know she Sounds like a woman with a lot of character, a lot of style. Mm. Um, and you assisted her as, mm. a, as a young boy, um, even attending fittings in the presidential palace. Yes. Uh, tell me about her and tell me about those formative memories.
4: I mean, I always say my mother made me who I am today. You know, from a very young age, I would watch her sewing. You know, I'd watch her make all these incredible clothes, all these incredible women come in. People always talk about sort of diversity and inclusivity, but I grew up with cousins and aunts and my mother's friends, all different shapes and sizes. My idea of beauty came from my mother. It wasn't a specific Eurocentric style, but it was anybody could be beautiful. And she really showed me, you know, the most incredible things you could do with fashion, how women would feel so beautiful in just one dress, the right dress. Um, She also showed me if women didn't feel comfortable, what that was also like. She would take me everywhere. I was really her little, that's probably her favorite. (laughs) (laughs) But I learned about beauty from my mother, definitely. I mean, you know, I can tell from one little glance if you're happy, if a woman's happy, but those things came from my mother. You know just being very attentive and that's really helped me
5: there's also another great woman and early on in the book your aunt who ran Dolly Dots the, yes. the hair salon mm-hmm. and you describe sneaking off to read all the magazines and Dolly Dots but also just sort of be in this lovely female emporium oh. of, of wonderful hair styling and and this great aunt mm-hmm. the figure in your life tell me about those moments
4: I mean I remember sort of always we lived in Tema so sort of walking to Dolly Dots and just seeing these incredible magazines like Ebony and Jet and Time it was as if a portal opened to a world of beauty and I mean magazines did that for me and I I would literally go through the magazines back and forth until they started to fall apart but I realized that there was a world out there. I didn't know what that world was, but I knew that women like Diana Ross, Donna Summer, Iman, these were incredible women, strong women. And I realized to this day, I love strong women. But looking through those magazines felt like another world had opened up in my mind.
0: You were listening to The Curator on Monaco 24, And a highlight here from the Foreign Desk. This is the year where Queen Elizabeth II died and they did a special show on royal funerals. And they were joined by King Lettse III of Lesotho.
7: It has been a very sad week. All of the country, Basotho people, in a state of deep sorrow as a result of the tragic loss of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Lesotho and Basotho in general enjoy and have enjoyed for many decades or even a century and a half, close relations with United Kingdom. And over the past seven or eight decades, they have enjoyed a very close relationship with Her Majesty herself. When I was growing up, there were still many people of course, people who are older than me, who still had fresh memories of Her Majesty's visit to Lesotho in 1947, when she was accompanying her late father, King George VI. For weeks beforehand, from every corner of the territory's 12,000 square miles, from rocky hills and dusty plains, the Basutos gathered on horse and on foot to greet the White King. Many people still remember and they were telling me stories of that event. And ever since, they've held Her Majesty close to their hearts. And this has permeated through society, Lesotho society, up till now.
9: One of the reasons we wanted to ask you about this was the very unusual perspective that someone in your position must have at the moment of a a great royal event like this. What do you think we learn about what role royalty plays in a society at a time like this?
7: I think it is clear that the role that institutions of the monarch and royalty play is really a unifying. Uh, force, particularly when times are difficult. And this has been clearly demonstrated in the past week since Her Majesty's passing away. We have seen how the people of the United Kingdom have come together, uh, have forgotten their differences, political differences and other differences, and have mourned together as one nation. That idea of the monarchy
9: as a focal point was something we did also want to address in this episode. And I was wondering that even when you are yourself the person at the centre of a great royal event, as you were at your coronation, are you aware of how much
7: diplomatic activity is going on around you? Well, of course, you are very much aware. As you said, I've been through myself uh, through some big events where in the suit, we've had visitors coming from abroad. And I'm very much aware, and I was aware, that it is also at the same time a diplomatic event for the country where the country is presented with an opportunity to host uh, dignitaries from abroad and to engage in discussions with visiting heads of state, visiting heads of government, uh, to discuss issues of common interest, and even simply just to talk about uh, simple things. That is also, in a way, a diplomatic plus, if I may put it that way. So I'm very much aware that events, big events, some are happy events, some are sad events, unfortunately, but they do play an important diplomatic role to countries uh, such as Lesotho.
9: Have you found royal events valuable in that respect yourself when you have travelled to them? And I guess not just royal events, but great state events, thinking most obviously of the funeral of President Nelson Mandela of South Africa, which you attended. But also I'm asking specifically because we were, as it turns out, both there, not far away actually, at a a celebration of then Swaziland's independence, I think the 40th or 50th anniversary. But I can remember seeing you on the reviewing stand with the like of President Yari Museveni of Uganda, President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda. At a moment like that, what kind of conversations are you able to have?
7: I see that you have an excellent memory. (laughs) Yes, you do have useful conversations. And of course, I've been to other royal events, so to speak, in other parts of the world, Thailand, Japan, and so on and so forth so all of these platforms or events they give you an opportunity to talk to people you haven't seen sometimes for a long time and just catch up and sometimes you actively seek an opportunity to sit down with one of them and discuss bilateral issues that are important to both your countries so I do agree that such events do play quite an important role sometimes. Do you think there's an aspect of
9: this which the monarch has a freedom to discuss and not negotiate, but discuss and raise issues that perhaps an elected politician does not? Is there a different level of diplomacy you think a monarch is able to operate at?
7: Well, I I can't speak for other monarchies, Mm. but speaking for myself, I do tend to use the opportunity, and whenever I meet other heads of state or even heads of government, to, if I can put it that way, put Lesotho on the map, if it is possible and if it is appropriate, and discuss issues which could be of mutual interest. And I do so, of course, knowing where my limits are, but I do take that opportunity. And, of course, in my discussions, I cannot speak as head of government But I do try to explore opportunities for diplomatic discussions and discussions that uh, I believe can be of benefit to Lesotho and the people of Lesotho. It struck
9: me as well that there's another very unusual insight that you must have at a moment like this, and that is into the, the human story at the heart of it. And if you'll indulge a somewhat personal question, it's, it occurs to me that dealing with the loss of a parent is a strange enough moment in a person's life when you don't have an entire country or indeed an entire world paying attention to you. And of course, before you became king, or certainly before you were crowned the second time you became king, you would have had to deal in public with the funeral observances for your father, King Mo the Second. II. How strange is it having to keep all that on track while having to deal with the very personal trouble of losing a parent?
7: I wouldn't use the word strange, but um, I think it's something that you come to accept very quickly, that, um, of course, you've lost a parent, You've lost a father, you've lost a mother, and you are hurting deeply as a person. But you become aware very, very quickly that you're not the only one mourning. There are others within the family. There are others, uh, many thousands outside the family, who are also mourning. So one has to take that into consideration and also in a way, try to console the members of the public and the nation at large, uh, because they would have also lost a leader. They would have also lost a king, somebody who they respected and loved for many, many years. So it is something that, in our position, you have to accept. And the circumstances, in a way, force you to accept that situation and. Uh, it becomes normal very quickly. And just finally, would you be coming to London next week? Yes, I I, I will be coming on behalf of, of the nation to come and convey our condolences to His Majesty the King and, of course, to the British people as a whole.
0: And a very emotional piece from the urbanist here as Russian bombardments continue to target Ukraine's urban centers forcing citizens to the borders or to seek shelter underground. We ask people from all over the country to tell us about the place they call home.
2: My name is Vitaly Rosman, and this is my love letter to Odessa, my home city where I was born and raised. Odessa is the pearl of Ukraine, actually the pearl of the Black Sea, Every single person in Ukraine who has been to Odessa loves it to the bones, not only from Ukraine. I had many friends visiting Odessa from U.S. or Europe. A lot of Russians visit Odessa, and they all love it. So for me, it's basically terrifying to see what's happening right now and pretty unimaginable. Odessa was built 200 plus years ago by French and Italian architects. And this city center reminds of Paris a lot. Every time I've been to Paris, actually, it reminds me of Odessa at a scale, of course. But if you've been to Paris, you can imagine what Odessa is like. It's a beautiful, beautiful city built on the Black Sea with lots of amazing architecture, among which is the Opera House, which is one of the most beautiful opera houses in Europe. Apart of that, we have many UNESCO spots which are protected by UNESCO, like Heritage lovely parks amazing beaches i see the center of odessa i see the opera house the square next to it with a fountain with lots of flowers with children playing and some artists showing their pieces of art maybe some people doing performances it's summertime a lot of tourists people are having fun people feel safe people feel that life is happening right now I mean, for me, actually, Odessa is first everything. Everything in my life that happened for the first time, pretty much happened there, from my birth until 27 years old. I went left the US first, and then basically started traveling around the world. But uh, I was always coming back to Odessa. I I could not be outside for a long time, so even when I was working in the United States, I was coming to Odessa probably four or five times a year to see my family and to take a walk. When I talk about Odessa, my heart is full with love. You can probably hear it from how my voice has changed. This is the true love of my life. Not only my life, everybody who lives in Odessa loves this city so, so much. We call it actually our mother, that the city is our mother. Even from this, you can understand what Odessa means to the people who was born and living there. The house of my parents is literally probably 500 meters away from the beach. When I was a kid, I used to, in the summertime, I used to run barefoot to the beach and spend the whole day swimming in the sea and playing with my friends, of course. I mean, pretty much like any kid would do, but yeah, growing up, being a student or even at the university, we spend a lot of time in the city center, walking down the streets, spending some time in the park. Right now, the spring's coming. The city is going to be amazingly beautiful. We have a nice area, a walking area along the seaside where people usually go and take a a long walk on the weekends or on weekdays when the weather is nice. And Odessa now is a very, very modern city. We have a lot of amazing restaurants being opened by our people and very modern and hipster, I would say, cafes with the culture where people come and communicate and they do some stuff, they create something. We have a lot of artists in Odessa, we have a lot of creative people. Lately, we had one of the parks recovered and there was uh, created a public space, huge public space, we call it a green theater, where a lot of concerts are being held in summertime. It's an open-air cinema, a lot of fairs, trade fairs, people who create some crafts. Every month, we have this crafts fair there. It's just a very, very vivid life is happening in So this is also a seaport. Odessa is known as the Seagate of Ukraine, because Odessa and cities next to Odessa have major ports, which are, by the way, blocked now by the Russian naval ships. You can compare it to, for example, Genoa. Last time I've been to Genoa, I felt the spirit of a big, big port city with a huge diversity, with lots of nationalities. Odessa is known to be, I think, 50-plus nationalities in the city, a huge Bulgarian population, a huge Jewish population a huge Moldavian population, Georgians, Russians, of course, Ukrainians, a lot of a lot of different people, Greeks, of course, who live in Odessa. Odessa actually was known to be where it is. Even before Odessa, there was another city which was established by Greeks a long, long time ago. So you can imagine how diverse and rich the history of this city and this area is. One thing that tears my heart apart is the photo where people put the barricades next to the opera theater, and they put the sand in there, you know, like, to protect from the bullets, to protect from the tanks. They put those metal constructions to protect against tanks. And I remember that kind of photo from 1945, from the World War II, when Odessa was occupied by fascists. And I saw that picture, that was a famous picture. Every Odessa citizen suffered from the very childhood when Odessa was occupied, and it was destroyed largely and right now seeing those barricades reminds of that picture that i saw from the world war ii and it really really makes my heart cry and i just don't want this to happen again what's happening right now it's a huge crime against humanity and i see the people of odessa united everybody now doing whatever they can people are building barricades people are helping they go to defend the city in those groups of the territorial defense people help with the supply of food and water. Those people who want to leave to go to safer places, they're being helped with that. So the unity of the Ukrainians and particularly of Odessa people is amazing now and that spirit, that kind of spirit will never disappear. And I feel so, so proud today to be Ukrainian and to be from Odessa. I just hope that our city and our country will stand And this aggression, this war, will end as soon as possible, so people can stop dying and people can go back to their lives and to what we love doing in peaceful life.
10: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
7: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
6: To find out how we could help you,
7: contact us at ubs.com.
0: And from Monaco-owned culture, Robert Bound joined in the studio by one of the UK's most celebrated writers, Alice Smith. Her latest work, Companion Piece, is an addition to Smith's seasonal quartet. Through her typical playful use of language, it brings together the specific hardships of the coronavirus pandemic and mythic history. It is a celebration of companionship and an exploration of how, after being locked down, we might open up again.
11: Our politics has become so, and it's everywhere around us as well, because now, I mean, you just asked me to switch my phone off, we've got our phones in our pockets, yeah. the, the news is on every screen in everybody's pockets, or you know, and the information arrives in everybody's pockets very fast, and we're living a very close-to-the-surface life to the things which are happening around us, nationally and internationally, in a way that I don't think we ever quite lived before we had this new screen version of ourselves in the world. And something about that has made it possible... Exactly as it made possible in the 1930s when Goebbels knew to string up loudspeakers everywhere so that you would hear exactly what Goebbels wanted you to hear, along with the jolly music that they were playing outside all the taverns and in all the streets, a certain take on culture. Politics at home and abroad, has been working divisively because everybody has always known since the beginning of time that divide means rule and that they're connected. And so in that time, that's the point at which we have to start paying real attention to all sorts of things around us to see what they give, whether they are giving, what it is they're giving us, what it is they're taking from us. And that division, I think, is where those seasonal books No, when you get a crack in a pavement and something grows out through it. Yeah. That thing. I think that's what happened with those books. Didn't expect it. Started writing those books... As a whim, I said to my, my publisher, now that I know we can publish books very fast, which I did because a book I'd handed in very late and they produced very fast, very beautifully, yeah. I'll just write really fast and you publish really fast and we'll see what happens. And that was end of 2014 and I started writing autumn end of 2015 and then the particular divisive nature of 2016 set in quite fast.
10: And you re- recreated so much of that language. Mm. Cause it was it was It's about language. Yeah, and mm. that that was the, the flower or the weed, spot the difference. I suppose growing up through that crack in the pavement. Well, you... Weeds are weeds
11: are great too, though. You know? Oh no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Let's <laughs> not let's not be
10: let's be non-denominational when it comes. <laughs> no, but they are. They're great. <laughs> weeds, but just wildflowers. Weeds
11: are anything, anything yeah. that grows, anything that's natural, anything that comes through whatever it is that someone has laid across the surface of the planet, which continues to produce life force everywhere it is. Which be thankful for. Which we are. We will be, and we'll need to be thankful for, if you know, if, unless we totally fuck it up, which you know we're in the, the midst of doing at the moment. But. Um, that is, I think that whatever that crack was in things is where those books came from, yeah, know. bubbling up. You have to just trust to uh, your times when you're writing and and you have, to, you have to sort of absorb your times and see what comes through the absorbing of them when you start to reproduce them in language.:
10: It feels like a funny thing to, to ask you, but do you know where where they start and finish? I felt this particularly with companion piece that I was eavesdropping. I was looking over your shoulder as you sat in your study. I was watching you, you for there, three hours I was <laughs> I knew, watching you I for know, three hours knew, as you wrote this I know
11: you weren't there otherwise I'd have said look let's go for a cup of coffee this is brush my, your teeth this, this book's driving me <laughs> mad <laughs> come on I'll go, I'll go through the kettle on because you know I'm yeah. going to put this in the bin any minute so you know, let's, 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 you know. so um,
10: but commentary you, something about why does this, it feel
11: like that what I is it I don't know It's the, something
10: about it. I feel like why do
11: you feel like it was me that you were watching do this
10: I'm, I'm not saying you're the any of the characters or but I feel yeah, like yeah. you're the maybe you're not even the architect I feel like you're channeling something you're putting your
11: not the architect, yeah. You're is, putting your, <clears throat> your just... hook
10: and worm into the stream that's flowing underneath and you're picking things out. I, I feel love like that. That's... Thank
11: you. I, you know I, I, I mean? do really love that notion of it, that you you take what is given.
10: And also, when I closed the covers on Companion Piece, maybe it was a w- two weeks later that the government announced that it was sending <gasps> migrants to... Rwanda. I was like, what would, how would that be treated in this book? Even if it was a line of dialogue or a suggestion or a thing, again, it's chucking the hook in the water and seeing what comes out. And I feel that these books have become very addictive for, for fans of your work and people that have come to it because of the, the currency, I suppose, of the, some of the subject matter here. And I kind of thought, God, I wish, I wish this had not happened at all or happened sooner so that it could be part of this one. Because it, it inevitably felt like it might be.
11: You know, it's richer in this one as well. This, yeah. this book begins in anger. The companion piece begins in a a kind of the slough of despond of anger of one person looking at where we are right now and how we've got there, what it is that is pressed upon us as a society and questions of generosity and closeness that Mm -hmm. you started talking about in this. And there is a, a line in here which sums up exactly one of the reasons why this person is very angry and why many of us might be angry about how people who have got to this country against all the odds... God knows how they managed it, because that's pretty heroic to have got here anyway, having had all their safe routes taken away from them, full stop. Still got here um, and ended up being housed in what had used to be a prison. This is a real thing that really did. They were living in a prison which had then, because it had stopped being used as a prison, presumably because it was too draconian as a prison, had been a prison theme camp, you know, kind of theme park. So you would go and look at what it used to be like to be in a prison. And now these, these folk who had arrived across the world... God knows what they'd come through to get here, were put in the cells, which were Funny still cells.
10: It, Odysseus was a hero and anyone else that crosses the seas in absolute claps in irons. So
11: we know that how, do it, we,
10: how do we pick who wins and who loses? In we know things? what
11: heroic is but yeah. as human beings, we do know. And at some point we challenge any state or society or structure which says that that is not heroic. And the human in us will always come to the surface, mm. is what I think.
10: It's the flower that's crunching its its way up. It's the
11: life force in us that that recognizes other life force openly rather than closedly. And that is the big question we we face on every level at the moment, you know, all across the world. How do we open? Especially, you know, we've all been. This book is very much about isolation and the isolation that we were all forced to be in for those years of lockdown. And when we have been locked down, how do we unlock again? I suppose is what partly what it's saying.
10: Yeah, that's very moving in this book. Sandy is the narrator of the novel. She's an artist who, I don't know, for, for Sandy, I wonder, was lockdown good? Was it profitable? I mean, she's insular. She's looking after her dad who's sick mm. and his dog mm. who <laughs> wants to go for a walk at 4.30 in the morning, etc, etc. Everyone feels like everyone wants more time, but not that sort of time, I suppose. How does Sandy Behave in lockdown.
11: That's, that's it. I know only as much about, about this character as is in the book, really. But I do know that if in lockdown you were faced with the extra, what we call it, trauma, actually, tragedy of someone who was ill and was hospitalised under the pressures that we were all under all across the world, then how did you deal with that on top of everything else? On top of isolation, the existential, which is natural to all of us because everybody... Deteriorates and everybody's, you know, family deteriorates, and she's facing that as well as the utter isolationism that we were all stuck in. At that yeah, time. and I and I think that's where this book began. It began with a person, this person, a total stranger to me, a stranger in the world, and then the question of how you deal with strangers in the world and how they deal with you and what the preconceptions are between strangers and or people you thought you knew or you vaguely know. or Vaguely you remembered vaguely from remember. university. Exactly. This yeah. is Martina. So someone phones up Sandy yeah. and says, hi, it's me. And Sandy has no idea who this person is. And the person tells, no, we were at college together. And Sandy says, oh, yeah, sort of vaguely remembers. And the book takes off from that point of tangential touch. Yeah. And becomes a kind of a question of closeness and openness all the way through.
0: And 2022 was a special one from Monaco. We celebrated 15 years. And if you want to know more about the early days, let's hear my chat with Editorial Director Tyler Brulé, Editor-in-Chief Andrew Tuck, and Creative Director Richard Spencer Powell.
12: I think I've always believed that good brands, doesn't matter whether it's an automotive company, whether it's a hotel, a lot of it is about repetition. And I think that there are are many magazines, uh, many media brands that we see that, that they do go through enormous transformation and sometimes you don't really you know recognize them from, you know, not one issue to the next or one decade to the next. And I think here, you know, we, we set out I think with I would say a pretty strict architecture in terms of the sections that we want to look at. I think the approach to photography, uh, the grid uh, that Rich built up and everything that went with it. And and I guess, you know, and when I say everything that went with it, a, a big core part of that when you think about consistency is also the people. And this is kind of remarkable that I'm sitting with uh, someone across me, Richard Spencer Powell, who I've uh, been working with since 1997. Andrew Tuck, uh, well, is, Andrew's been on the journey for 15 years, but we've known each other for over 30. So that's also part this as well
0: and Andrew I, w- I want to put you here in this uh, conversation I mean it's about the belief in print as well because when Monaco was launched at 2007 now I'm realizing it was the credit crunch years I mean nobody was kind of advising people to launch a new title right
13: I mean but I think that that belief is what makes Monaco in a way right well we started and then that credit crunch came around the corner a little bit afterwards but very swiftly But it made us kind of think about what we stood for and and how we would connect with audiences. And I think it baked into the brand of Monocle some really important things very early on. One of, of which was you need to be nimble. Another which was you need to be focused on opportunity. And another one, maybe that you need to be positive. Because if we had kind of got all caught up in the woes of that time, we'd have soon vanished as a brand. So oddly, those, those have become tenets of the things that we stand for and how we report stories and, and how we deliver things to our readers. And so I think it was a good test in a way of Monocle. It, it, it made us feel primed for what was ahead. And and, and Rich, again, the design of Monocle,
0: that's uh, incredibly remarkable, the kind of slightly bookish kind of characteristics of it as well. And again, tell us about some of the changes you do, because again, Monaco is not a magazine, as I said to Tyler. With number one and number 151, they look incredibly consistent.
1: But tell us about your inspiration, actually, for the now iconic design of Monocle. Well, I think the design of Monocle or any magazine of Monocle's type, which of course there aren't many, I think it's just about presenting the journalism well. Not being capricious and changing your mind, being confident, being consistent and doing lots and lots of small things well or as well as you can and to do that for as long as you can. And I think we have to be, you have to be confident. You know, the newsstand, you make a magazine with a a nice front cover and you put it out there to the world and say, please come and buy me. And you have to be confident with that. And I think you have to trust your instincts. And of course, you can develop a bit and react to things. But I think we've just been very good at staying the course and sticking to our sticking to our beliefs and we've managed to do that for 15 15 years consistently of course there are challenges and of course each issue is different but I think yeah as long as you stick to the core values I think the product uh, is long lasting and that was always the intention to to design something that wasn't faddish and um, capricious or schizophrenic that it was confident and, and it knew what it wanted to be And,
0: Tyler, I mean, we're being all nostalgic here as well, but I think Monaco, I don't know, it feels to me, even working here, that we always like to look ahead. I mean, of course, we're looking at the best times of those 15 years, but I think we like to look ahead, right? And we are not stopping. There's so many new projects for 2022. So, I mean, if you give a little overview for our listeners, what can we expect from Monaco
12: this year? Well, I think one interesting thing is, When you look back, and of course, we're we're doing interviews, we're talking about this, this brand, and people said, well, at what point did you decide that you wanted to do e-commerce. And, and people think that we just jumped on that bus, uh, you know, maybe in the last seven or eight years. But you go back to issue one, and there were a series of porter bags for sale. Now, it wasn't the most advanced logistics operation behind uh, what we were offering. I think maybe those bags, Andrew, they could have been just behind your desk uh, on a shelf. But anyway, there were so many fundamentals that we had. You're Very, very early on, there was, there was a podcast. It wasn't a, a rolling uh, radio service like there is now. So I think there's there are a lot of fundamentals that we've been doing for a very long time. If, if we look ahead you know, right now, we, of course, you know, 10 core issues a year, plus the specials that we do, uh, our new sister magazine, Confect. Uh, we're doing newspapers uh, when they present themselves, when there is a great event around them. And I mean four books uh, as an average right now. Um, but of course, we're, you know, we're, we're in a period. We're not doing our travel guides at the moment. Uh, we might be going back to world of travel guides at some point in the not too distant future. So there's also, I would say, an uptick that we want to do there. And then just going back to the fundamentals of the people, the journalism. So a new a new bureau on the horizon in Bangkok. We have to wait a little bit for Lisbon, uh, <laughs> Faye. But you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Chris Lord being out in Los Angeles, I think, really reestablishing that. And to what else am I, am I missing uh, editorially that we're doing as well? I mean, and also just, you know, the other day, probably the biggest intake of, of new staff that we've had in a while as well. I think you've covered most, most of the the products. But
13: I think what, what's important, Faye, is to underline here is, you know, the, the way we tell stories, you know, it has, it has evolved and will continue to evolve. We're going through a really nice period at the moment where we have these great long investigative reads in the magazine, which has been... Not a dramatic change, but just a good push in the right direction has really connected with our audiences. Tyler was talking there about going to the story, putting out Asia Editor on manoeuvres, taking him to Bangkok. But just in the past few weeks, as you know, we've had two people from M24 out in Ukraine. We've been there at the protests in Ottawa. So I think for us, for all media brands, is going to the story... And I think also this interesting thing, you know, we, we have offices here in London, we have offices obviously in Zurich, but we do have outposts throughout Asia. And, we, and we're not just a British brand. and We're not just a, an English language brand. In the words we are, but in Outlook, we're trying to be global. We're trying to be international and make sure that some of the narratives that end up on page aren't the same ones that you'd see in the US press or other, other UK titles as well. You are
0: listening with the curator here on Monaco 24. From the menu, we meet the top Portuguese chef, Nuno Menges, to discuss his new London restaurant, Lisboeta, and the role restaurants can play in boosting the local community.
8: For me, I think it's critical, and I think a restaurant needs to be shaped around the neighborhood it's in. You know, the concept of Lisboeta is very much a, you know, we want it to be a neighborhood restaurant. And I feel like Fitzrovia, it is for me a new neighborhood, but I feel like It is a neighborhood. real has its own pulse and has a real sense of identity, of unique identity. There's a lot of very interesting businesses around, but there's also a lot of uh, local community. And I think uh, an open-minded, open community that seemed to be well-receptive to Lisboeta, yeah.
14: Nuna, what are your thoughts then about the role restaurants can play in shaping areas? You said earlier that you should take the neighborhood into account when you create a restaurant, but does it work the other way around too? Can restaurants change areas? I'm thinking about when I moved to London 11 years ago, you were running the restaurant Via Jante in Bethnal Green, and that place went through a massive transformation.
8: I think, I mean, look, I think with restaurants, I think it's a social hub, right? And I think you become a focal point of the neighborhood in some ways. You know, I think with Viajante, we had, obviously, was it wasn't, you know, Viajante's destination restaurant, but we had, within the same building, we had the corner room. That was very much a local neighborhood restaurant. And I wanted to engage my friends in that community, the friends that lived around there, the artists around there, friend, you know, just the young parents, et cetera, that lived in that area that I wanted to engage with them. And I wanted them to give them a space where they can populate that had the same energy that Viajant had, but a much more affordable price point. And I think that this is, even with the firehouse, I think, despite the destination, I think it still is a neighborhood restaurant. And I think what we have at Lisboeta, I mean, for me is, again, my goal is for it to be a local a neighborhood restaurant, but that could also turn into
14: a destination. When you talk about a local neighborhood restaurant, I would imagine that one important thing to take you into account is accessibility. What are your thoughts about that? Because in a way, you combine fine dining and at the same time, you want to be very accessible.
8: Exactly. I mean, I think a modern restaurant needs to be able to change gears very quickly and to be able to offer an experience and to allow for a guest to come in. You know, like I mean, I feel like we're friendly engaging neighborhood restaurant I mean we' just started but I feel like we are we're welcoming the neighborhood well but it's a kind of place where our guests can come in. And they can, you know, literally, like, they can come in, have a glass of wine, maybe have a couple of snacks, and then they say, actually, like, you know what, I like it, I'm going to stick around. I mean, it is very busy now, which is great, but I feel like as the time goes on, I think this will become more the premise of the place, a place where you can walk in, have a glass of wine, have a beer, or have a coffee, and then have a cuss tart to be fine or something like that, and then, they're like, oh, actually, like, I'm going to stick around still a little longer. So I think it has that. But then if you want to, you can come in with friends and you can go for a full meal and then you can go all out. You can get like, you know, the the Portuguese wines and all that. You can really go go a bit crazy.
14: I did visit your restaurant (laughs) and what I found intriguing is how many staff members you had worked with
8: before. I'm wondering, what's your recipe for keeping staff? Man, I try to take care of them. Look, a lot of people say that but, you know, like when you, look, when you look behind, when you close the door, you look behind closed doors, not necessarily the case all the time. But look, yeah, I mean, I try to take good care of our team. I think I try to create environments where there's a bit of a family environment. I feel like it's important to have a like family feel. You know, I'd like to make sure they always have a voice. I try to look after them. I try to get them engaged with the place and also have a sense of ownership, of belonging, and, and also like, you know, creating a nice sort of a perspective of growth when they come with us I mean a lot of them stay with us for a long time because they grow give them a platform to grow I mean you know we try to obviously give them a a nice work-life balance try to de-stress as much as possible you know what it is a stressful reasonably stressful sort of career path then try to I don't know I mean the kitchens are nice I mean like you know we try to open kitchens so the environment to work you know try to give them good kit to work with The fact that, for one, like, you know, some of them actually serve the food, but they do it because they like it. They enjoy, like, the engagement with the guests. When you look back at 20, 30 years ago when, you know, like, being a chef, in many cases, like, being in a very, very small basement kitchen, just working away and just sending the food into a lift and that disappears into who knows where. I think all that's gone, you know, and I think so the environments that I've tried to create are, like, a little more friendly than that.
14: So now that your restaurant Lisboeta is open, how do you explain the concept of that restaurant to those
8: listeners of ours who haven't been to this place? It's a little slice of Lisbon. I think it's inspired. It's a modern take on a Lisbon eatery set in London. So, I mean, the space cap is a critical one because it gives us also a little bit more room. And obviously, like, you know, we try to bring Portuguese ideas, some Portuguese ingredients, some Portuguese tradition, and some good stories and some, you know, a little bit of uh, our gastronomic diversity and the culture that we've had.
0: And now a highlight from the entrepreneurs. We meet the three founders and CEO of Nobu Hospitality at the Nobu Hotel London Portman Square. They discuss what makes a great welcome, how talented people ensure a consistent brand and their collective passion for redefining standards in hospitality.
14: The people come into the restaurants, you know, I like to say something, I don't want to be quiet. Irashima say means like a welcome, right? But the one customer asked me to know what means the word, uh, Irashima says. I say joke. <laughs> Spend money. So, <laughs> you
5: know,
14: now people understand also immediately so like into the restaurant. So if you make the comfortable. So that's why I like to make in the first step, customer into the restaurant, I like to make the feel comfortable. That's why we start said, Irashima
6: say. And is that the same for all of you? What matters most when you arrive somewhere? Yeah, I think for me, even though some people don't understand what it means, because, I mean, it creates some kind of an energy. I think the whole idea of going to Nobu is have great food and also have fun. So it's a combination that we're trying to create, and that's why people like it. It's, you know, people can even move from one table to another, so... When they come in and they hear the welcome, it gets them to the moon that you don't have to be very quiet It's not like a... Not like a library. (laughs) And
15: about that amazing energy, Bob, was that something that, if we go right back to like 1987, La when you first, I think, experienced the food, did you sense there was a different energy, something special all the way back then, before this journey kind of really took off? The place, as soon as I... Started having the food and the whole experience was the same generally then as today. But what made you guys think, this needs a bigger audience. We need to go to New York. We need to go to the world. Was that Did you have that sense that early? No, I just, I mean, I just knew it was going to be, it would work tremendously in, in New York. I had no doubt about that. Traditionally in New York, you go to Japanese restaurants and they're nice and so on. And like here in London, in my experience, they're... Nice, they're terrific, blah blah blah, but it's not what Nobu does. I said, This is this will work, this is great. I hate to use this word, but it's it's sexy, it's uh, people have used it before, but it was, it was great the great ideas always seem very simple what about being the kind of steward of the brand and on a more day-to-day trevor let me bring you in here are you very aware of that that kind of energy these values they kind of seem to flow through all the premises when you walk into nobu hotel on portman square you can still feel it even though it's one of the newer hotels how aware are you of being the steward of those values yeah
1: i think well really nobu is about the people people in the company and um I've been going to Nobu for way before I joined Nobu. And and the one thing there was that they, the people were the same everywhere I went. So there wasn't a high turnover of the people. So I knew when I was going there, I could call this person. And when I get into the restaurant, I felt at home. So it was that. And I think today the biggest challenge is trying to retain good people. But we do that. And people want to join Nobu. And, and I think that is is the key to... Really, everything we're doing is we've got a consistency and the people. They have a professional pride in what they do. And that's really sets us apart from everybody else. And do you think that people are
15: entrepreneurial? Do you need to have an entrepreneurial spark to make a success, whether it's in food or in hospitality, in movies, whatever you're doing? Do you need to be entrepreneurial, man, in terms of having that that spark, that hunger to be successful, to try new things, to take risks?
6: You have to have some of that as well, but... For me as a businessman and as an investor to start with, I'm having fun at the same time that I'm working hard to make the business successful, but I'm also enjoying it. So when I get up in the morning, I get a lot of energy because I'm enjoying doing it. It's not difficult. It's it's not like hard work. So I think what we created is going back to the energy that you have in the restaurant. It's a combination of everything. It starts, of course, with the food. But then when we opened New York, we were the first restaurant, I think maybe in the world, that had fine dining with no tablecloth. In the beginning, people said, how can you do that? You need to have a tablecloth here. And Nobu and the team decided, no, I think it'll be nice. And also sharing the food. So that also creates an energy. So it creates the great fun that when you go out to an an experience dinner at Nobu. Well, that's all we've got
0: time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening.